0: Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. So good to see you. Wherever you're gathering from, we're so glad you're here. Luke chapter 10 today, Luke chapter 10, we're gonna finish up a series that we're in called Irresistible. And we're calling it Irresistible Church because the next two years of our church is going to be themed with this very theme, Irresistible. And we want to put God's love on display in an irresistible way. And that's gonna be our theme for the next two years. So this series has been a vision series, Asking God to again do impossible things, hopefully irresistible things, as we come to the end of a two-year run, we called impossible, and we saw God do the unexplainable. Because you only get to see God do the unexplainable when you attempt the impossible. And so we're going to see God do that again, as we talked about in the next two years, launching a family ministry. We'll be doing that next year. We're going to be launching what I pray will be a ministry to build irresistible families. It's going to be a discipleship ministry. Uh, we're We're going to be renovating 1822 Cherry, part of the campus we're calling Crossroads. We'll be launching Crossroads Campus in the spring, and then we're going to be renovating the building next to it as a part of this campaign to put in some Sunday school kind of kids' ministry space on Sunday morning, but then it will be a counseling center through the week. And so it's very exciting to see what God's going to do. We shared that we've actually purchased property in Johnson County to be in the runway again to launch a campus in the Overland Park area of our city that will come after the crossroads. So you can see, we don't stop doing impossible things, we do irresistible things. And hopefully we're gonna see God do the impossible while we be a church, I'm praying, increasingly irresistible. Luke chapter 10, I'm convinced it's here in this very famous parable that Jesus reveals the irresistible, compassionate heart of God. In this very famous parable, uh, called the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches what makes the gospel truly irresistible is God's compassion for all people in a world of condemnation, in a world of hostility and animosity and tension and division. Did you know that God has compassion for all people? And we're gonna see that today in this parable in Luke chapter 10. It says these words in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, would you agree this is the single most important question any human being can ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Yes? I mean, Jesus is going to answer that question today. And that's the number one most important question anybody here can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You have this man, he's asking the right question. He's asking it to the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus knows his heart. And he knows that while he's asking this question, he's actually being disingenuous about it. He's doing this to try to test Jesus and put Jesus kind of on the spot and corner him. He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, when it says he's a lawyer, understand it's not really like a lawyer we think today of a lawyer, uh, whether it's a trial attorney, you know, or a district attorney, prosecuting attorney. A lawyer in Jesus' day would have been an expert in the law of Moses, So the law of Moses, the Levitical law, was the rule of law in ancient Israel. It had both ceremonial laws, it had civil laws, it had religious laws. And so by the time of Christ, these laws had been so distorted They were really confusing, and so they're actually experts in the law that actually studied the law to tell people what it meant. Like on the Sabbath, the Jews were meant to rest. They weren't meant to work. And so somebody had to decide what is work and what really constitutes of work and and what's rest. That's what this lawyer was. He was an expert, and so he's testing now Jesus. He's trying to put Jesus on trial, but Jesus is way too fast for him. He's going to turn it around and put him on trial. So he asked him, well, you tell me. You're the expert what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he says this, and answered and said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this would have been a part of the law that all the Jews would have quoted twice a day, part of the Shema, and it was part of their daily prayer, and they would have quoted this part of the law twice a day. We call it the first and great commandment. Remember what Jesus said? You got the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the attorney, this lawyer, answers him with the first and second commandments. And look at what Jesus says to him then. He says to him, you've answered rightly. You get a happy face on your test today. Do this and you will live. And suddenly this lawyer realizes uh, I was putting Jesus to the test. Now he's putting me to the test. I want to put him on trial. Now he's put me on trial. You know why? Because he knows he can't do this see, there's not one among us that can love God perfectly all the time or love others perfectly all the time. Not one among us can do that. No matter how much you love people, there are times you put yourself first, you put them ahead of you. As much as you might love God, you don't love God all the time, not always. In fact, every time we sin, we're telling God we don't love him because Jesus defined love as loyalty. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So when we don't keep his commandments, we're not loving God. Here's the point. Nobody can keep the first commandment and second commandment suddenly this lawyer realizes Jesus got him. Now, instead of just confessing, Jesus, I can't do that. I would love to do that. Tell me how I can still go to heaven and inherit eternal life. He begins to justify himself like a lot of lawyers. He's starting to look for a technicality, looking for a loophole. Here's what he says. Look at this. It says, wanting to justify himself. He says, well, Jesus, just who is my neighbor? We're going to get philosophical about this now. Now, this is just, just, you're going to have to define this for me. Just who is my neighbor? Looking for the technicality, isn't he? Now, look, Jesus doesn't answer him specifically, directly. He answers him with a story. The story known as the Good Samaritan. It's a story that today, even people that don't know anything about the Bible, uses the phrase a Good Samaritan. When you stopped and helped somebody change a tire by the side of the road, oh, he was a Good Samaritan, right? This is where this comes from we're gonna see from this parable that what Jesus is teaching is, one, everybody is your neighbor. Not just the people who live next to you on either side of your house or across the street from you. Everybody you meet in the eyes of God is your neighbor, worthy of love and compassion. But the bigger question is not who is your neighbor. The bigger question is this. Will you be a godly neighbor? What about you? That's the real issue. And so he answers the question with this story. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, what is amazing to me about Jesus is he uses a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. You know, he's teaching even your enemies are worthy of God's love and compassion because historically, the Samaritans were the mortal enemies of the Jews, and the Jews were the mortal enemies of the Samaritans. Now, it's not lost on me that in Luke chapter nine, just the chapter before this, Jesus and his disciples were passing through Samaria and they needed some place to stop for the night. And so they stopped in a Samarian town and the people in that town would not let them stop for the night, would not give them shelter, would not give them food. Basically, you guys are Jews, get out of town. And because of that, Jesus' disciples, uh, the ones he called the sons of thunder, James and John, guess what they said As they're leaving town. Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? heaven and nuke them and Jesus was like whoa cowboy hang on John Wayne we're not going to nuke anybody today okay now just 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 a few days later they're having this conversation And he's using this story. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not lost on the fact that probably Jesus is using the Samaritan as an illustration and an object lesson specifically for his disciples. What's he teaching his disciples? Listen, they may treat us like We're their enemies, but we're not going to treat them like they're our enemies. In fact, I'm going to make our enemy, the Samaritan, the hero of the story. I mean, this is amazing. I can't even begin to frame how remarkable this is. The hatred, the hostility that went on for centuries between these two people, the Samaritans and the Jews. I mean, this would be like today, we just came out of the midterms, and everybody knows the hostility, the animosity between our nation's two biggest political parties. So this would be like, seriously, Joe Biden telling a story and making Donald Trump the hero (laughs) of the story. (laughs) Unthinkable. This would be like Donald Trump telling a story and making Nancy Pelosi the hero. (laughs) Unthinkable, wouldn't it? Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero. This was unthinkable to his audience, the Jews. Yet that's what he does here. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What is Jesus teaching? Listen, God has compassion for all people, even our enemies, even the people that we can't stand, that don't think like us, that don't like us, they even hate us, even the Samaritan in your life, Listen, God has compassion on all people. God has compassion on all people because all people are priceless to God. And listen, if we really want the next two years to be focused on irresistible and putting God's love on display in irresistible ways and the gospel on display in irresistible ways, then we gotta see what God sees. We gotta feel what God feels. When God looks at people specifically, when God looks at you and me, what does he see? Listen, we value people differently than God values people. See, to God, people are priceless. Now you and I, we don't look at people that way. We base, well, where are they from? What do they do? It's performance based, the production, how much do they produce. So I'm kind of known for my meaningless, worthless trivia. Okay, so so here's some. I just read this yesterday. Meaningless, worthless trivia. I just read seriously that if you could boil down your body into its most base chemical elements, I'm talking carbon, magnesium, nitrogen, H2O, oxygen, if you could boil it all down into the most base chemical elements, the average person with the average human body would be worth about $585. I told you, meaningless, worthless trivia. Now, I'm twice the size of some of you at 245 pounds, so obviously I'm worth a lot more. (laughs) I'm double some of you guys, yeah. See, God doesn't look at us that way. He doesn't put a price on any of us. Yeah, yeah, we do. Think about this. You can, I've been told you can, you can insure the average American homemaker for about $3 million, the average American CEO for about $10 million. So in America, the price of your life is worth between $3 million and $10 million. But if you're born in, say, Sri Lanka or the Sudan, which are impoverished parts of our world, your, your price ain't nothing. Nobody's going to insure you for $10 million. Not there. See, we look at the price of a human being far differently than we do God. Where are you from, what do you do, what do you produce? Oh, you think about this, from 1980 to 2015, China had a one-child policy, which meant if you had a little girl, you really wanted a little boy, and families all over China, they could have one child, that was it, and that meant for years and years and years and years, they valued boys more than girls, so if you were a little girl, you weren't that valuable, boys were very, very valuable, so unfortunately, for decades, if you were in China, and you had the misfortune of being born a girl, you often got abandoned or aborted, because everybody Everybody wanted boys. But now, because there's not enough girls in some places in China, girls have no more, now they have more value because there's not enough wives to go around for the men. So all of a sudden, women have raised the value. You think about this for a moment. If you're in the state of Missouri and you're in your mother's womb, you have great value. In fact, the state of Missouri says you're fully human. You're worthy of being protected. That's right. Your life is worth something. But if you're... If you're just across the state line in Kansas, oh no, you're not considered a human, you're considered a fetus. Unless you're actually wanted and then you're no longer a fetus, you're actually a baby. Really weird, isn't it? Rather arbitrary, isn't it? See, that's the nature of human beings. We put arbitrary value on human life. When God says all human life is priceless, all human life has value, all human life has infinite worth. And we have to begin to see what God sees because the reality is God has compassion for all people because all people are priceless. You can't put a price on any human being And this is what Jesus is now teaching. Even your enemy is worthy of compassion, this is the, the God of heaven who looks at you and I apart from Christ and no, he does not see his children. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. Before you come to Christ, you're in your sin and what the Bible teaches, you're estranged from him. You're the enemy of God, yet he had compassion on his enemies is why Jesus came and died for our sin and rose again. I want you to notice the certain man represents us in our fallen condition. Now in all of Jesus' parables, there's the cast of characters. You have to understand the cast of characters. Who is the certain man, he said, that fell among thieves? He was beaten, he was bruised, he was bloodied, he was stripped naked, and he was stolen from, he was robbed from, and he is left for dead. This represents you and me in our fallen condition, naked, wounded, and left for dead because of sin and s- Satan. You see, apart from Jesus, Ephesians 2, 1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You came into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is why Jesus said, you must be born again. This man has fallen. And I want you to know what Romans 3, 23 says, that everyone has fallen and fallen short of the glory of God. See, we've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. The standard of heaven is sinless perfection. And we all fall short of that standard because of sin, not only only have we fallen, but we've fallen among thieves. Jesus said there's a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10 and verse 10, his name is Satan. Not only that, Jesus said he is a murderer. This man fell among thieves, and they robbed from him. They stole from him, and they were there to murder him. They left him for dead, and that is the condition of all men and all women while they are still in their sin. You see, that picture is one of you and me apart from Jesus. We are helpless. We are hopeless to revive ourselves. We can't give life to ourselves. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And I want you to notice, he said, it's a certain man. I want you to notice what Jesus says. It was a certain man that fell. You know why? Because it wasn't just anyone. It was a certain someone. Do you understand that to God, you're not just anyone. You are a certain someone. He sees you in this massive humanity, seven billion people. He knows your name, he knows who you are. He wants to redeem you as a child of God. You're not just anyone, you're a certain someone. I am thankful that in 1975, at a church on a Sunday night, there was a certain little boy, not just any little boy, but there was a certain little boy sitting there in the pew of that church on a Sunday night in 1975, there was a certain little someone, and God came down and opened that little boy's eyes so he could see his need for a savior. And that little six-year-old boy knew how much he needed a savior because of his sin. That little boy was me. Amen. There was a certain little boy. Listen, there's a certain someone right here. God sees you. You matter to God. What do people really want to know is do they matter? Does anybody see me? Listen, if nobody else sees you, God sees you. We want to put God's love on display in irresistible ways. That means we need to learn to see what God sees. Church, listen carefully. I'm about to say this is not a rebuke, not a reprimand. You guys are awesome. Yeah, I really mean that. We asked for 1,100 Thanksgiving boxes. You guys brought 1,200. It's what you do living generously, sacrificially, selflessly. I am so thankful for you. What I'm about to say is not a reprimand, it's a reminder. I got an email from a lady this past week that it came to this service, second service, in Lee Summit a week ago. And this is by far and away our fullest service. Last few weeks, 90% capacity. 80% rule of thumb is it's full, meaning it hits 80%, it's hard to find seats, right? So especially depending on when the chiefs kick off, Everybody loves this service. So she says, I came, hadn't been to church in a while, come to church off and on at Abundant Life for several years. And I came five different times. I went to five different people. I saw empty seats next to them. I asked if I could sit down. And five times they told me, no, these seats are saved. I left in tears. I didn't stay for the service. First time I ever felt shunned by this church. Now listen carefully, I don't think anybody here would shun anyone. I don't think you would do that. The problem for this lady is that she didn't know she was seen. She came to church alone, didn't know she mattered. Can I just encourage you to see what God sees? That happens again. Here's what you do. Well, I'm sorry. These seats are saved, but let me help you find a seat. By the way, my name is such and such. Hey, I'm happy to meet you. I'm glad you're here. See, all of a sudden, she knows, she's seen. I want to remind you of something. People out there need to know that God sees them, and we're the body of Christ for a reason. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. They can't see Jesus, but they can see us. But every single week, people are coming from out there to hear, and all they really want to know is, does God care? Do I really, really matter? I'm trying to say today that we need to show the irresistible heart of compassion to all people to see what God sees, no matter where we are, to show them God really does care. That certain man as you and me, apart from Jesus. We're in a helpless condition. We have all fallen among thieves, stripped naked, helpless, and hopeless. Now, there's another cast in this character. There's the Jewish priest. The priest pictures the law of God. The priests were the keepers of the law. They're the ones that would work in the temple, and they would make the sacrifices daily before God. I want you to know, as the keepers of the law, they kept a list of things to do. And this is what you do. When you begin keeping a list of things to do to appease God, you put yourself under the law, but the law cannot save you. Now, the priest should have been the one in this story. We'd all expect that he sees this man. The priest naturally would have compassion on this man. All this priest does is walk over at him and go, man, you're a mess. Stinks to be you. You made your bed. Guess you gotta lay in it. You know what Jesus is teaching? That's all the law can do. That's all it can do. It cannot bring about salvation. It can only bring about condemnation. It was only there to give you the diagnosis of your spiritual condition. What is the law? We've already heard, too love God with all your heart above all others, love others with all your heart above yourself. Nobody can do those two, but there are many, many more laws. Think of the Ten Commandments, right? You can't steal, you can't cuss, you can't lie. Somebody thinks, well, I've kept most of the commandments. Check it out, James two ten. If you break even one commandment in the eyes of God, you've broken all the commandments. You know why? Because the law demands perfection, sinless perfection. That standard of heaven is perfection. Not I tried really hard. Not I was a really good person. Not, well, God knows I'm only human. No, you don't understand. The standard of heaven is sinless perfection. And the moment you start approaching God out of a list of things to do, you put yourself back under the law. And if you don't keep the right list and you don't keep the list perfectly, completely, and totally, you're toast and this is why the apostle Paul would write in Galatians 3 a Pharisee a man that knew a lot about the law for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it's written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things everybody say all things you can't slip up even one time not one time remember the standard of the law is perfection does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Remember, this lawyer wanted to justify himself. And so we naturally want to justify ourselves by keeping a list of things to do. Well, I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. See, God, you've got to accept me. You've got to be pleased with me. You've got to let me come to heaven and check it out. What Paul is teaching is that no one can keep the right list and no one can keep the list perfectly, completely, not totally, because if you stumble even one time, In the eyes of God, you've broken all of them. What does Paul teach about the law? The law, therefore, was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Everybody say faith. It says in Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Galatians, guess what they were arguing about? What they thought was that if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you came to faith in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, you got to be circumcised. And if you don't get circumcised, you can't go to heaven. The Jewish rite of circumcision was a condition for your salvation. What is Paul teaching? Oh, no. Uh-uh. That's not what God sees. Uh-uh-uh. And by the way, how in the world did you even prove who was and who was it? Yeah, I, hated, I would have hated to go to that church, wouldn't you? Now, now, nobody argues today about whether you got to be circumcised to go to heaven. Oh, no. Now it's Baptism. See, the moment you add one thing to what Jesus did, you put yourself back into the law. You see, being a Christian, following Jesus, is about a love relationship. We love him, therefore we obey him. But listen carefully, I've been baptized not to become a Christian, but to show that I am a Christian. I've been baptized not to be forgiven of my sin, but to show that I have been forgiven of my sin. You see, that's the difference. And when you say, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, you're now living by a list. You are under the law, and the law can only bring condemnation. It has no power to bring salvation. So you have the priest, all he can do is look at him and go, yep, you're a mess. Now, there was the Levite. Remember the Levite? The Levites were keepers of religious rituals in the Jewish temple. Religious works cannot save you. Righteous works cannot save you. Listen, doing a Thanksgiving basket cannot save you. You will not earn points in the eyes of God no matter how many Thanksgiving baskets you go and buy and give away. That's not how it works. You're not gonna buy your way into heaven by the good things you do. The righteous works you do the religious works you do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Everybody say faith. faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works. Everybody say works. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. Listen carefully, religion is about you keeping a list of things to do, hoping you get into heaven. But redemption is not about what you do for God. Redemption is about what God has done for you. That is the difference between religion and redemption. And religion has no power to bring redemption. Redemption. The Levites were keepers of the ceremonialism. They were keepers of the ritualistic system. They were assistants to the priests. They would work in the temple. And I want you to understand, religious ritual and ceremonialism has no power to save you. See, religion takes the symbols and shadows of our salvation, and religion takes the shadows and symbols and start considering them the source What is a shadow? If I hold my hand up, this light over me, I can see my hand. It's a shadow, but that shadow is not my hand. What is it? It simply points to the source. See, baptism is a shadow it's not the source of your salvation. Communion is a shadow. It is not the source of your salvation. Yet religion says, no, the salvation is in keeping the ritualism and the ceremonialism. And what Jesus is teaching is that cannot get you into heaven. It has no power to bring about your salvation. There's no hope. Now listen carefully. I don't care what church it is, what denominational tradition it is, what church affiliation it is. Every single church and all the backgrounds we they all come from, they have their own traditions and their own ceremonialism. My wife and her tradition was taught that she was a Christian and going to heaven because of two things on the list: baptism and confirmation. That's what she was taught, growing up, made her a Christian. Now, I was raised in a different tradition. Here was our ritual. Oh, we all have rituals. Here was our ritual: to get saved, to go to heaven, to become a Christian. You have to come down the aisle to the altar during the invitation after 27 verses of just as I am. <laughs> oh, some of you went to the same church I did. Okay. Yeah. And it had to be just as I am without one plea. You know, that's the Billy Graham invitations. So, I mean, Billy Graham and so there we are. I mean, every Sunday night. I remember a Sunday night service, because I was a kid, man, Sunday morning, Sunday night. You talk about tradition. Wednesday night, we were at church. All I remember Sunday night service. I mean, 27 verses of just as I am. And nobody's gone forward literally praying, God, would you save somebody? Please, somebody get saved. <laughs> or we are never going home. Now Listen. You may have walked down the aisle sometime in your life, and you may have prayed in an altar with somebody there, and you may have asked Jesus into your heart, even though asking Jesus in your heart is nowhere in the Bible. And you may have indeed been saved and been forgiven and become a Christian, what Jesus called born again. On the other hand, it might have just been empty motion or emotion. And this is why religion produces hypocrisy. Outwardly, you look clean and pristine, but inwardly, you're still sinful and filthy. That's the nature of religion. It produces an appearance, a persona. Uh, this is why Jesus called out hypocrites. Uh, religious people is about hypocrisy, looking one way outwardly, but it doesn't really change us inwardly. And he calls them out in Matthew 15, verse seven, quoting from Isaiah, Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know what this means? It means you can even come to church like this one that doesn't worship liturgically, and there's nothing wrong with the liturgy in churches that do a lot of responsive type worship, and it's kind of the same thing every single week. Listen, you can come to church like this, where it's different songs every week and not the same thing every week and still go through vain repetition. Like you can raise your hands to every song. And I went to church and I saw this for the first time. I thought, man, these people are weird. Yeah, I know what some of you are thinking when we raise our hand. Th- this just simply means, God, I surrender. This is a sign of surrender. Look, you can raise your hands at abundant life and sing every song at the top of your lungs and check this out it can still not affect the heart. You can say all the right things with your lips and your heart still be far from God. God sees the difference. See, the nature of religion is just a cover-up. Jesus is about a clean up. This is probably a little TMI, too much information. I'm sorry. But religion is like deodorant. We all put on deodorant today, this morning. We got ready, yes. I hope so. I'm just being honest. So the way I look at it, all right, so normal day, a TMI, sorry. Eight strokes. Eight's the number new beginning in the Bible. It is. Now, on Sundays, I'm working up here, y'all. Yeah, I got a hanky. I'm, so yeah, I'm working up here, right? I'm going to perspire when I preach because I'm working. You know what that means? I lay it on thick. 40, 40 times. (laughs) thick. You know why? Because I want you to like me. I don't want to be stinky. You understand what I'm saying? I'll go back here to the green room between services and and get ready to come out and talk and walk around, talk to you guys. You know why? Because you matter. I would talk to every person here if I could. You know why? Because you're a certain person. You matter to God. That's why I come out and walk around. Can't talk to everyone, but I wish I could. I would if I could. But I don't want to come out and walk around until I have gone back there, and I have this bottle of cologne. Guess what I do? <laughs> <laughs> and then I have this bottle of mouthwash. Guess what I do? <laughs> yeah, I guard. You know why? Because otherwise, I might be offensive to you. I don't want to offend you. With dragon brass after I preach. Now, here's the problem it doesn't really deal with the problem. All of that's just a cover up for the problem. It temporarily manages the problem, contains the problem, but the reality is you got to do it over and over and over again. Deodorant is not a one time, one and done. Taking a bath is not one and done. That's like religion. That's like ceremonialism. It can cover it up, but it cannot bring a cleanup. And some of you have tried religion all of your life. You've done exactly what you've been told to do, and your life still has not changed. And the reason why is religion has no power to make you a new creation is not done by a list of things to do it's about what God has done for you and you see this Levite could do nothing but walk over to him and go yeah you're a mess don't want nothing to do with you The priest could do nothing but say, yeah, you're a mess, you're definitely gonna die. Definitely gonna die. That's all it can do. But then there's somebody else. There is a good Samaritan, the certain Samaritan, as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He's saying, I have compassion. God has compassion. He sees us in our sinful, helpless condition. Romans 5 and verse 8 God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to become lovable to love you. Oh, he loved you even when you were unlovable. And let's just be honest, you're not always lovable. Yeah, God sees all those moments nobody else sees. Yet he loved you. Even when you didn't deserve the love of God, he loved you. He set his affection on you. And now you have this good Samaritan, this certain Samaritan, a picture of Jesus, living proof of a loving God to a watching world, putting God's love on display in irresistible ways. He has compassion on him. You see the good Samaritan represents God's heart of compassion that while we were dead in our sins, Jesus came to die for us and all of our sin and all of our stink and all of our stench, it was placed on him. But Jesus rose from the dead. You see As a man, he could die for our sin, but because he was deity, he couldn't stay dead. There's no such thing as a dead savior. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He broke the curse of sin for all men and all women so that now we can have redemption freed from that list of religion says, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, the symbols Jesus is using are very, very measured. This isn't just random. In the ancient days, oil and wine were used, in fact, to soothe and cleanse wounds. These were the days before antiseptic and neosporin and all the stuff we have today. So they would take olive oil, they would pour it into a wound, and that would soothe the wound. Then they would take the wine, and the alcohol in the wine would act as an antiseptic. It would cleanse the wound. But it's more than just the history, the, the medical, clinical thing Jesus is teaching. No, these are symbols in Scripture. And you understand, a lot of you, if you don't, you're going to, that in Scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You're dead spiritually, but the moment of salvation, when you receive by faith the Son of God, you receive the Spirit of God. And Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, it's the Spirit that gives life. This man was dead. He was soon going to die. But It's the spirit that gives life, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. It's the spirit that gives life, and God gives us the spirit of God to bring life to the dead spirit within us all because of sin, but not just that. There's wine. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of blood. All the way through, it's a symbol of blood. Jesus at the Passover supper, right before he would die, he's passing out the cup, the cup of redemption. As he does, he says these words, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood to symbol of blood. And do you understand that he takes the spirit of God and the blood of the son of God and he binds up our wounds. He brings healing to the wounds of sin in our life. It says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. It doesn't just cover our sin, it cleanses our sin. Revelation 1 and verse five, he loved us and he washed us from our sin in his own blood. A good Samaritan begins to minister to him with both oil and wine. And on the next day, when he departed, he took the two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. He said, whatever more you spend, I'm trying to tell you, you are priceless to God. No price was too high to redeem you from your fallen, beaten, broken condition because of sin. Now, scholars tell us he gave him two denarii. I don't know if you know what that means or not, but it was a lot of money for one or two nights in an inn. As a matter of fact, scholars tell us that it would be, I'd put it like this, you're going to Motel 6 for the night, $49.99 a night. This would be like paying the guy behind the counter like $10,000 for one night's stay. Two denarii was between, depending on the inn, between 25 nights and 65 nights. That's how much money he gave the guy. And then he says, if that's still not enough, let me know. When I come back, I will pay you more. Do you understand what Jesus is teaching? You are priceless to God. No price was too high. And that is why Jesus paid the only price, the highest price. The blood of Jesus Christ was the price to redeem us from our fallen condition, he paid a debt he did not owe for a price we could not pay. The parable ends like this. So which of these, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Church, this is the irresistible compassion of the heart of God for all people. The next two years is about being irresistible. How do we put the gospel on display in a dark and dying and desperate world in irresistible ways? It's exactly the same way by showing the world God's heart of compassion for all people. That no price is too high. Let's go and show God's irresistible heart of compassion Because to God, every person is priceless. Would you bow with me right now? Everybody at the other campuses, right there online, I want you to bow just for a moment. We are almost done. But the next 120 seconds could be the most important two minutes of your life. This parable began with a question What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered that question not by religion church affiliation religious tradition ceremonialism a list of righteous works it's by faith alone in what Jesus did for you Would you have a moment of introspection wherever you are in the world right now, right here in this Lee Summit Auditorium? Do you know with certainty if you die today what you would see in eternity? Most important question anyone will ever ask you. Do you know with certainty if you closed your eyes in time and you opened them up in eternity what you would see? Somebody today would say, Phil, I don't know for sure where I stand with God. If I died today, where I would be? I want to pray for you personally. Would you let me do that? Would you slip up your hand very quickly, very quietly in the air? Pastor Phil, pray for me. Just hold your hand up high. Yes, sir, I see you. Yes, ma'am, I see you. It all begins with honesty. Yes, ma'am, thank you. In the back, I see you. God sees you in the back. Up on the terrace, the back row, God sees you. Yes, sir. It all begins with just saying, God. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for showing me my condition spiritually. And I want to invite you to pray with me right here in this auditorium down here near me back in the terrace. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. God will hear your prayer right there where you sit. There's a certain Someone, a certain man, a certain woman. You're not just anyone. You're a certain someone to God right now. You can receive forgiveness, redemption, eternal life. I want you to pray with me right here online. Pray with me right now, wherever you are. Jesus, just pray this. Jesus, I know that I've sinned, That I cannot get to heaven apart from you, But I believe you died for my sin, that you rose again, that you're alive today. And by faith, I receive you as my Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, come into my life, and change me from within. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, there's a whole bunch of people just prayed and received eternal life. I'm certain of that. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at AbundantLifeLS.